0: Thank you very much, Charity. <clears throat> is that your prayer? Make me a servant. I trust in your day-by-day living it is. As we interact with God's word. A couple questions, looking for some response from you. Is correct doctrine or teaching important? is correct doctrine and teaching important why or why not yes, and pardon I yes, and why yes and you should know why you believe what you believe okay I have a reason for the hope within you and why you come to the conclusion you believe what you do anyone else is correct doctrine important why why not Hey, scripture would call us not to deviate from it. Any other response? Next one is "once saved, always saved," taught in Scripture. Gene, you can't find it. Okay. So you would say it's not, from at least what you know, you can't find it. Anyone else? You believe it, but can't find it. <laughs> Any other response, Joy? Okay. If you're in your, if you're in the Father's hands, no one can pluck you out. Any other response? Third question, do all humans live by doctrine, teaching of some type? Do all humans live by some type of doctrine or teaching? response Sunday school class this morning some of the guys were saying about what happened in Brazil where a call was made by a ref and I guess the player started to argue with him and the ref stabbed the player to death and then I'm not sure the whole sequence you know if there's time lag between but apparently there was a crowd or fans that ended up killing the ref and took his head and put it on a pole in the middle of the soccer field. Now, I say all that to say that there's a belief system behind that. We said it's really messed up, but there's a belief system. I need three volunteers, three volunteers. It's not difficult. Three volunteers. Rick, come on. JT, one more. Lisa, (laughs) Darlene volunteered you. Here's your envelope. Just stay up here and you turn around. Here's your envelope. You can turn around and here's your envelope, Lisa. I want each of you to open your envelope and hold up what you have in your envelope. Okay, Rick, hold that up. Is it a pen? Yes. Are you sure? Are you sure? No, I guess not. It looks like, what do you have, Lisa? What do you have, Lisa? Inside of a pen. Inside of a pen. JT, what do you have? I have a pen cap. Okay, do any of them have a pen? (laughs) You can write, but it's not a pen as we would call pen. Okay, you may sit down, but lay your pieces here on the table, please, because I'll need them. Now think about doctrine in that way, that sometimes we take doctrine and say, we have this doctrine over here, and then we have this doctrine, it's separate from that, and we have another doctrine, it's separate from another, and then we have another one, and it's separate. And sometimes we do the same with the character of God, Well, God is holy So his holiness is over here and his love is here. His sovereignty is somewhere else and we kind of divide God. So we look at some scripture tonight. We're going to focus on reading some scripture, briefly comment and then go to another scripture and then draw some conclusions as it relates to putting a pen together if you please and responding to some of the questions earlier. Let's go to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, passage that we read this morning. Again, in the context of Christ, his deity, he being the Son of God, he being the Christ. We're just going to read verses 34 through the end of the chapter. We know that Jesus had spoken about the fact that he was going to suffer many things. He's going to be rejected by the elders. He's going to be killed, and then he'll rise from the dead. Peter rebuked him, and Jesus then rebuked Peter. Verse 34 of Mark 8, Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? What can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this idolatrous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Jesus basically says, if you want to follow me, if you choose to follow me, deny self, take up your cross, follow me. And then he poses some questions. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? A person may amass wealth. They may have status in the world and have much power. What good is that if they lose their own soul? What can a man give in exchange for his soul? The very obvious answer is nothing. And then he makes a statement, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this idolatrous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes with his, or in his Father's glory with the holy angels. If you look at the passage overall, discipleship is a choice to turn from self to Christ, totally and completely. we discussed discuss that some this morning, we'll discuss it some next Sunday morning. Question, does my lifestyle show I'm a disciple of Christ? Now notice I did not say show that you're a believer in Christ. Does it show that you're a disciple, a follower of Christ. Now let's go to Romans chapter one. Romans chapter one. <clears throat> Paul begins in Romans by defining, explaining sin. And uh, as we go along tonight, be asking for some volunteers to read. Someone's willing to read 21 through 26, and then 24 and 25, but I'll start with verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. Someone willing to read 24 or 21 through 23? Alan. Twenty four, twenty five, Danny. Therefore, God gave them over, their their hearts, the Someone want to read twenty six and twenty seven? Romans one. Romans one, twenty six and twenty seven. We're at. Jeff? Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed decent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind, to do what ought not to be done. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanders, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, Boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these things, but also approve of those who practice them. Now, Paul makes it very clear in verses 18 through 20 that God's wrath has been revealed. From heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. His eternal power and divine nature in verse 20 have been revealed. And at the end of 20, so that men are without excuse. 21, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God. They thought they were wise, but they exchanged the glory of God for images made to look like mortal man and so on. What happens in verse 24? God gave them over in the sinful desires of their heart to sexual impurity and so on. And in 25, they worship and serve the created things rather than the creator. So what does God do in 26? He gave them over to shameful lust. And in 28, they didn't think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God So he gave them over to depraved mind. And notice some of the items listed in verses 29 and 30. Every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity, envy, murder, strife, malice, gossip, slanders, arrogance, or arrogant, boastful, and so on. Now, please see the context that those items come after a rejection of what God has clearly revealed in nature, a choice to worship and serve the created thing rather than the creator. And God says, if that's what you want to be, I'll let you go. There's a progression away. The rejection of God's revelation of himself, and nature results in a downward spiral away from God, which yields idolatry, sexual immorality, greed, of envy, strife, and so on. Such lifestyles are a result of choices to move away from God. It doesn't just happen. They develop a belief system that rejects God. Again, a question... Does my lifestyle display any sins which show one has rejected God as revealed in nature? And let's go to Romans chapter 6. Paul discusses sin. Then he presents Christ in chapters 4 and 5. And in chapter 6, he explains what we have in Christ. We'll read some of the chapter, chapter 6 of Romans, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live any longer in it? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. A person comes to faith in Christ, they die to sin. Can a dead person eat? No. Paul's point would be The believer died to sin. How can they live any longer in it? It's a pattern of life. Notice in verse 15, what then shall we, or what then? Shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offered yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you're slaves to the one whom you obey. Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you' wholehearted or you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You've been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. So the Romans, Paul is saying, you move from being slaves to sin to slaves to righteousness. Again, speaking of a pattern of life. Verse 19, I put this in human terms, because you're weak in your natural selves. Just as you used to offer the parts of your body to slavery, to impurity, and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time From the things you are now ashamed of, those things result in death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He's talking about lifestyles in Romans 6. And it's clearly stating that the person who has come to faith in Christ has shifted masters from slavery to sin to slavery to righteousness. And sometimes in presenting the gospel, we might use Romans 6 and verse 23, which is fine, but notice it's context. It's in the context of slavery. For the wages of sin is death. Slavery to sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, which results in slavery to righteousness. Again, he's talking about patterns of life. The believer in Christ has died to sin, been set free from sin. Therefore, he or she is living in slavery to righteousness. It's in Romans 6, slavery to sin for the believer is past. And I said, slavery. I didn't say the believer never sins. I didn't say the believer is never tempted. But Paul makes it very clear that the Romans were not slaves to sin. They become slaves to righteousness. There's been a shift. He talks about salvation, but he also talks about slavery. Question, does my life clearly display I'm a slave of righteousness? Well, let's go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul's writing to a carnal church in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. They were a divided church, some were following Peter, some Paul, some Apollos, and then others said, Well, we follow Christ. He calls them a carnal church in chapter 3. He addresses their divisions. And then we get to chapter 5. He brings up the issue of someone living in immorality. 1 Corinthians 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not occur even among the pagans. Now here Paul is writing to saints. He calls them saints in chapter 1. He says they're holy. Probably haven't been believers more than two years. but they're allowing immorality in the church. But keep in mind that Corinth was a pagan city. You know, anything went. So they thought, well, this must be okay. A man should have his father's wife. Many would think that he was involved sexually with his stepmother. Verse 2, and you are proud? Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and put out of your fellowship, the man who did this? Even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit. And I've already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I'm with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus Christ is present. Hand this man over to Satan. Why? So that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Paul seems to imply that this man would be a believer. But the church is exhorted to act. Don't let this man continue to live like that. He goes on in verse six, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works throughout the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. Now keep in mind, yeast or leaven in scripture generally implies evil, that which is not good. So what does he say? Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. For Christ Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. I've written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I'm writing that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man do not even eat. Now he makes a distinction. He says those who live in immorality, those who are greedy, those are swindlers and so on. Those who worship idols they're unbelievers, you don't have to withdraw from them. But if one claims to be a believer, calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral, greedy, idolater, slander, drunkard, or swindler, he says, with such a man don't even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. Apparently, the Corinthians did that. And apparently, the man repented. And apparently, the man came back to Christ. When I say came back to Christ, into the body of believers and would have walked with Christ. Some pretty strong things said in 1 Corinthians 5. The local church is to judge sin within. And hand those who practice it over to Satan. But we're not to judge the world. I find it interesting that we can get very upset, and I'm talking about the body of Christ at large in the U.S., over what is happening in our country. We can talk about all kinds of evil, and I'm not saying it's wrong to talk about that, but do we address what is present in the body of Christ? Paul clearly says, the church is to judge those within the body. Why? So that the sinful nature may be destroyed and the spirit is saved in the day of the Lord. Are we as a local church handing those who are sexually immoral, greedy, idolater, slanderer, drunkard, swindler over to Satan? It's a fair question in light of scripture. In light of what scripture says here. And we have looked at a variety of passages tonight. We could look at some others, but we won't look at any more tonight. But I want to do or want to draw a couple conclusions. I'll skip through some things. First conclusion is Scripture presents various doctrines as a package. not as individual doctrines. For example, reconciliation, the security of the believer, and perseverance are a package. God does not speak of them in isolation from one another. See, God doesn't say, here's reconciliation, here's the assurance of the believer, and here's the perseverance of the saints. speaks of them as a unit. My father and I had some disagreements over doctrine at times. I grew up as a Mennonite. He was a staunch Mennonite. And uh, I came to believe that I was a, had assurance as a believer. You know, if I trusted in Christ, I became a follower of Christ that I was secure in Christ. And Dad and I would talk sometimes, and he would say, Dan, you can't be saved. Once saved, always saved, that's just not true. I said, Dad, I agree with you. Once saved, always saved is not in scripture. It's not. Once saved, always saved is not in Scripture. What is in Scripture is that the person who comes to faith in Christ is secure in Christ because it's dependent upon Christ and what Christ has done. And in the same context, over and over in Scripture, he talks about the perseverance of this saint that will go on walking with God. So, Dad, you're right. Once saved, always saved is not taught in Scripture because you're taking a doctrine and talking about it in isolation from reconciliation, from perseverance. Read Hebrews. He talks about Christ. He talks about following Christ. He talks about the security in Christ. And he talks about the perseverance of the saints together. So to say once saved, always saved is taught in scripture. It's taught in conjunction with reconciliation. With perseverance. And you will not find the term once saved, always saved in scripture, by the way. (laughs) It's just not there. So if someone says, well, I get saved. Now I'm going to heaven and they're going to live like... The devil, you probably need to say, hold it. You say you came to faith in Christ, but you're not persevering. You don't want to go on with God. You know, there's something wrong with the picture. So, some examples. Do not discuss the security assurance of a believer apart from perseverance and reconciliation. So you have a teenager, you have a young adult says, oh, I'm a believer, once saved, always saved. I know I'm a believer. You say, how do you know you're a believer in Christ? Well, I get saved when I was a kid. But they're not living it. There's not, there's, it's not evident in their life. I would probably they take them to scripture and say, In Romans 6, if you died to sin, how can you live any longer in it as a pattern of life? There's something wrong. Because Scripture does not talk about security or assurance in isolation from reconciliation and perseverance. If you want to say it's a package deal... (laughs) Be slow to discuss reconciliation with a non-believer. Or if you want to use the term salvation or presenting the gospel without mentioning the issue of perseverance. I'm not saying that they need to understand, you've got to persevere and so on. But if they're getting the idea, I'm going to trust in Christ and my sins are all taken care of and I'm on my way to heaven and I can just live like I want. You better talk some more because that's not the gospel. The gospel is a call to follow Christ. <clears throat> Talking to a guy one time, and uh, we were discussing some things, you know, about the gospel in Christ. When I come to faith in Christ, that means I have eternal life. Yes. Then I can continue my lifestyle the way I was. No. You didn't get it. Because reconciliation is being restored to God. You're following Christ, and you no longer want to live in rebellion to him. Reconciliation is not merely a change in eternal destiny, but a change in masters from self to Christ. Are saints secure? Yes. Can saints live as they please? And by that I mean, can they just live in sin? No, because God says they'll persevere. Well, you say, which is it? Yes. <laughs> it's reconciliation. There's assurance and there's perseverance. You can't separate them. They go together. Give you a choice. I'm going to take you to the doctor tomorrow and uh, you're going to tell the doctor which you want to part with. You're going to have surgery at my request. You get to lose your Lungs, or heart, or liver. You can keep two of them, but not all three. Now, which one are you going to choose to part with? Will you say, if I lose any one of them, I won't be around? Well, if you lose any one of the three doctrines that we mentioned, then you don't have correct doctrine. Now, we are tempted to divide sometimes. Questions or comments? Ray. (laughs) Yes. Now please understand, I'm not saying the true believer will never sin. We're talking a pattern of sin. But the Holy Spirit works. If the spirit isn't convicting the sin, you say, "Are you better reconsider?" Yeah, read Romans eight. Romans eight is quite strong on that. Again, you can't separate and take,, you know, pick and choose. Uh, it's all there. And why would Paul say in 1 Corinthians five about the body addressing that sinner? Well, the man, the saint who was in sin, let me rephrase it, because that's part of the spirit's work. See, the church there would have thought this was fine because of their background. And Paul says, oh, this isn't acceptable. So he tells the church what to do. They address it and they become more mature. Any other comments? The nature of the questions, some that we raise at times, imply that we want to live as close to sin as possible Rather than drawing near to God, give you a couple that you know we might ask sometimes: Can a person who slanders, gossips, displays selfish ambition, displays fits of rage, is envious, and so on, be a believer in Christ? They have that as a pattern in life. Can they be a believer in Christ? Is the individual who who is living in sin but claims to have been saved years ago a believer? A family member of mine isn't seeking God but must be saved since they made a profession of faith years ago. Am I correct? The nature of the questions imply that we want to live as close to sin. But stop and think about it. Selfish ambition is far from love. Fits of rage are far from compassion and kindness. We talk or ask about continuing in sin, which is far from obeying Christ because they died to sin. Why not desire to be holy as God is holy? Can a person who slanders, gossips, and so on as a pattern of life be a believer in Christ? Let's rephrase the question. If they're a believer in Christ, Why wouldn't they desire to walk with Christ? So it changes the whole picture. Is the individual who claims, who lives in sin, but claims to have been saved years ago a believer? Let's rephrase it. Doesn't Scripture teach that those that are true believers desire to live as slaves to righteousness? So it changes the whole nature Of the discussion. Not living as close to sin as possible, but living as close to holiness as possible. (laughs) Frame the question in a different way. And I'm not out to say where everyone is. That's not my point. The point is to think biblically and not being afraid to lovingly think about our own lives and how we live and those that we may know, and not to always say, well, they're believer or unbeliever, but to challenge them to think differently. Let me go back to my dad. So my dad and I are talking about the security of the believer, and he says, Dan, once saved, always saved is not in scripture. And he says, you know, the Baptists believe. Once you trust in Christ, you're saved, and you can go out and live like the devil, I said, Dad, if, if that's what the Baptists teach, they're wrong. I said, I don't think that's what most of them believe. But he had in his mind, because of some people he knew, that said they were believers, they were in Christ, and they would live like the devil. He said they can't be believers. So I thought I'm going to you know, ask my dad some more questions. I said, Dad... I want to know when you lose your salvation. What sin must you commit to lose your salvation? I'm not sure what it might be. Well, did you ever commit it? I don't think so. I said, Dad, you really believe you're secure in Christ, don't you? I said, Dad... Please see, we're reconciled to God. We're secure because of Christ. And we persevere because of Christ. Don't separate them. See them as a package. And the person who said they're saved and they could live like the devil, their lifestyle is showing that they're not persevering. So maybe they're not a child of God. Consider that, Dad, that maybe they're not. Maybe you need to challenge them with correct doctrine so that they may live well. Questions or comments as we wrap it up?